Uh, we got something a little different today. Um, we are, if you have your hand out there, we are, uh, we've done personal apologetics, we've done practical apologetics, now we're doing, uh, now we're practicing apologetics. And uh, if you keep it alliterated, that means you're doing something right. Everyone knows this. So, um, today we're going to try and practice some apologetics by listening to someone give their particular view of the world. Uh, it's kind of a dark view, but I think um, it's going to be challenging to us. So, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will start heading down this rabbit hole. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for bringing us here together for uh, this time of worship. Um, we thank you that we are able to do so, that your love is abundant, and that your love is abundant toward us. And Lord, we pray for your blessing even over the Sunday school hour, that we might be able to um, grasp these concepts and begin to have a heart for the lost and a heart that guards our own uh, heart, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, the question we have today, that hopefully will be answered by the end, is what do I say to unbelief? So we're going to talk to, we're going to hear a point of view that um, it's a drastic point of view, uh, but I think it's challenging because I think this point of view um, you might run into a few times out in the world, but you might run into it in your own heart several times. So, as a way of review, does anyone remember the two moves of our apologetical method? The two moves that we talked about. Yes. Okay, good. And I know that sounds, that doesn't sound like a very complex apologetic. Um, I'm sure uh, there are more complex ones out there. But showing the logical end to the unbeliever's assumptions. Uh, is not an easy thing to do, um, because what is it, if anyone remembers, now this isn't on your sheet, what are we trying to get them to realize when we show them the logical end to their own assumptions? It has to do with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. That they're without excuse because they're doing what? They're suppressing the truth. Okay. So what are we assuming about the unbeliever? What does Romans chapter 1 tell us that the unbeliever already knows? That there is a God. And not just a God, but what? The God, right? Right? Because uh, as he looks around the world, 
Not only does he know our God, but he knows our God's attributes, right? That's very clear. So, all right, are we ready for our little, our little test? What we're going to do is we're going to listen to someone's point of view, and then we're going to go through some steps of hearing the point of view, and then we're going to go through some steps of answering that point of view. Um, you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking you were going to hear Jim Carrey in your uh, Sunday school today, but you are. <laughs> That's what's so weird. Okay, I hope this works. I'm just going to hold this to the mic, and I want you to hear uh, his point of view. Uh, in this, he's not trying to be funny. You will see very quickly. Uh, this is... Uh, this is what he's kind of become over the years and what he's come to believe. It was more like you're supposed to say, you know, we're important. You're yeah. supposed to say it's all going to be all right. And you're supposed to say uh, that, you know, whatever you dream can come true. And you're supposed to say all those things. I do believe in manifestation, power of that kind of stuff. But I don't believe that any of it matters, you know, and, um, this mattering is, a, is to me, a, a human construct born out of a need, the same, same need as you have to have, you know, deities and things like that. And I believe in an energy of God, an yeah. energy of, you know, everything is divine. You know, there's just not, there's no, there's no thing that isn't divine. Everything is divine and I'm that. And it doesn't matter to me what's happening. I'm finding that ultimately the, the freedom from it is... Uh, is something people are kind of hungry for in a way. They're like, I don't want to be me either. You know, and I and I go, well, great, because you never have been. What was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't. Uh, I wish I could have you listen to more. Uh, he can't stop from swearing in it, so I'm trying to find the parts that are okay to listen to on a Sunday school. But. Uh, what he's getting at here is he has accepted the logical end to evolution story. Um, the idea that, uh, that has been uh, sold to the unbeliever to uh, comfort them in their unbelief. That we are all just stardust, right? Have you heard this? And the story is... Uh, Everything's just stuff, and you are stuff, you are conscious, and that's great, but then you disappear, and you're gone. And this idea that we need to make things matter, he says, is a human construct, that nothing really actually matters. We, we try to make things matter because we kind of need that. He said it was a human need to believe that this world matters, that what we do matters, but in reality, it doesn't. He goes on to say that we are playing characters. Um, we have these characters that we play for other people, we have these masks, and they're just characters we play because we think everything matters, and that's why we have these characters. If we if we just realize that nothing mattered because we're all just a bunch of stuff that eventually will disappear 
the real us can be seen, and the real us is really nothing. Now, how do we listen to someone's unbelief? And this includes not just someone from uh, who has been given everything and worked hard for it, blah, 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 and has a bunch of money and all that stuff, and he realized it didn't bring him any happiness, and he's come to this conclusion. Isn't it true that these kind of thoughts sneak into our own heads? Bob. Jim Carrey, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Bob is. Yes. So Bob is catching on to something that we're not getting to until the next part. So he has cheated already. <laughs> no, but that's a good point. I mean, doesn't this sound like uh, Solomon's lament in Ecclesiastes that everything is just futile. What was, what was the translation you liked the best? Vapor, yes. So there's a, there's a part of, of this argument that isn't, he's not just way out in left field, there's something there, right? But as he said, part of that meaning making is us inventing deities right? That maybe this whole God thing has been a way for us to cope with the idea that nothing really matters. Now, this isn't a new idea. This is something uh, Satra came up with. Uh, and before him, there, was other, there were other uh, philosophers that developed this idea. Uh, Jim has, is not this brilliant thinker that just came up with this idea and everyone's like, whoa, dude, that's deep. Um, but we need to listen to what he's saying. So I want you to look on your paper there and I want you to see the three-step process of hearing unbelief. Your first blank there is that you should explain their view as they would want it to be explained. In other words, if you caricature their view, um, you're not really doing anyone a, a service. Okay, so this has been a problem even in uh, the realm of Christianity where we've caricatured other people's views. So we said, uh, you know, to counter evolution, we've said things like, well, I didn't come from no monkey, that's ridiculous, silly, and, you know, they, they kind of make it look silly, but then when the kids go to college and they see the sophistication that's behind evolution, then they go, that's not what I was told, I was told this was silly, and look how sophisticated and complex this all is, and then they, as young people usually do, they equate sophistication with truth. Because it's sophisticated, it must be true, and therefore, they start believing it. Um, so it is important to be able to explain that view uh, 
articulately and well, uh, this will help even as your own unbelief starts to pan out. Because if you keep it general and you keep it a part of your emotional state and you're not talking it out and trying to explain what it is you are thinking, it will stay within the emotional state. You understand what I'm saying? And you're not able to really deal with it. And so as we look at this, we're looking at explaining the view. Uh, who would like to, and I know I didn't leave it on very long. Uh, there's more, but it's, he kind of just basically circles back. And uh, So how many w would be anyone willing to explain this, his point of view? in a way that he would say, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. How would you say, like, if he would say, well, what do you think I'm saying? How would you respond to him? Yeah. And, and does he have, in a thinking outside of Christian world, um, does he have good reason to think this way? What story is he using so that he can think this way? Okay. Jen? Okay, now this is a good point that, uh, that's my sister, by the way, if you all want to, you all don't know. Um, uh, that's a good point, because we, we might be foolish in thinking that this is a dark view. Um, how many, uh, this is a, I don't know how many of you have seen this, this movie. Um, the Night at the Museum, there was a part one, everyone loved it, then there's a part two. And I was like, me. Uh, the part two has um, that woman that flew the airplane. Yes. And uh, she's one of the wax figures. So if you don't know the movie, these wax, fig these wax figures wake up because of this special power from Egypt or something like that. And they have life for a while, and then they turn back into wax during the day. It's, it's a show. Okay, so. Uh, so. In this movie, Amelia Earhart, the wax figure, is alive because of this special thing. And she has to go back to her, old, her other museum where she will vanish because she's wax. Her consciousness will vanish forever. And she's going to do it. And it's this big, brave moment in the movie where she is going to basically become annihilated. Her consciousness will be annihilated because she's going back to this other museum and her consciousness will be gone. Now, if you think, I think that's Disney, uh, halfway 
think that's Disney. Um, you know, these are messages, right, being sent to the kids. This isn't uh, just an interesting little thing. It's a brave thing to believe, right, in this movie that I'm going to be annihilated for eternity, and that's great. I'm okay with that. I have accepted that, and that's brave. And that's what, you know, basically this is what Jim Carrey is doing. And we think that, and you know, we think, oh, that's so dark. How could you think that? But there's comfort that comes with it, right? There's comfort because there's no comfort in knowing you're about to come into contact with an almighty, all-righteous God who will judge you for eternity. Uh, compared to hell, I would much rather be annihilated. Um, and so what we've done is we've kind of moved from explaining his point of view to the second step, describe the conditions necessary for their view to be true. So what are the conditions necessary for this view to be true? Well, first you would have to have a world in which um, everything really is accidental, um, by chance. Um, where uh, the, new, the new theory is that uh, this universe is actually just a part of a much larger universe, and that's where the materials were used to get the Big Bang to develop this uh, particular universe. Uh, there's others, uh, other theories but the idea is we're just a bunch of stuff. And eventually this stuff will disintegrate. And then it might come back together and we'll start again. This is, uh, this is Nietzsche's idea. And if this is the world that he lives in, if these are the conditions necessary for the world he's talking about, then it's really true that nothing matters. It doesn't matter that people um, are destroyed. It doesn't matter that there was a holocaust. It doesn't matter that there is rape and killing. It doesn't matter that a man went into a elementary school and murdered children and then murdered himself. Those are just acts that stuff has done to other stuff. And in the end, it doesn't matter. The question is, if we look at our next step, evaluate those conditions, want to evaluate those conditions, that means we want to judge them. <laughs> um, does anyone really act that way? Let me ask you this, does Jim Carrey act that way? Does Jim Carrey really act as if nothing really matters? When President Trump was, was president, did Jim Carrey act that it didn't matter that someone was doing things Jim Carrey didn't like? No, Jim Carrey uh, apparently is also an artist, uh, whatever that means. Um, and he was very, very outspoken against President Trump. Well, what would it matter if President Trump's doing these things? What if President Trump wanted to annihilate uh, half the population? It'd be like, well, I don't think that's very fortunate for that half of the population, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Does he really think it doesn't matter? Are we um, hardwired to accept that nothing matters? 
Another issue that we want to bring up is the issue of how sure he is about all this. How much certainty can you have about the story of evolution? I am not asking whether evolution is consistent or not. The theory can show lots of consistency. It's a, it's a, it's a model that has been quite profitable for people that have very large brains. But as a model, has it really shown truth? So the question that we have to come to is, how can Jim Carrey, how can this point of view be certain of this point of view? Does this point of view allow certainty? Bob. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So the underlying science of all this stuff and quantum physics and all that random will never be All right. So Bob is talking about how even mathematically the chances of this happening are nil. And we're not talking about someone who is an armchair mathematician. We're talking about someone who has a degree in math in mathematics, a very high degree, and has lived his life in mathematics. Yes, you've done some probability work. And so, so there's a difficulty in trying to be certain with the kind of certainty that we heard just now. Sarah, I saw that hand. Mm. Right. Yeah, and 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 what what Sarah is bringing out is that you know his basis, which he's really 
putting a lot on is science, and science works in models. And models aren't designed to tell you what's true, it's designed to explain your observations and who's doing the ob observing. It's humans who have a lot to assume and a lot of beliefs that have to go into that in order to have a working paradigm so that you can even use the model. And so there is a lot of difficulty in speaking with the certainty that you heard just a little while ago with Jim Carrey's point of view. Daniel? And there's truth to that. Um, they weren't there to observe it. There's, there's things that they can assume. So, star, so light takes, you know, what, 186,000 uh, miles per second to get to us, something like that. I don't, anyway, something like that. And uh, so they know that. And so, you know, the sun, we see everything happening that happened about four minutes ago or something like that, five minutes. Um, but we can see stars that are way out there. They're millions of light years away. Well, how is that possible? Well, the assumption is, if there is no God that made the world as he decided to make it, right, where he made Adam at what age? Let's say 25. If you were to look at Adam's body, everything in his body would tell you it's a 25-year-old body. But at the time of creation, it was a second old but his body tells you it's 25 years old. Everything about his body, his hair growth, there's evidence that there has been cells that have been replaced. And how could that be that he's only one second old when he has a 25-year-old body? It's because that's how God created the world. He made it already in, in process. Now, you either believe that or you say, nope, I don't want to assume God. I will assume there was no God, and now you have what we talk about with evolution. All right, so in hearing unbelief, we've gone through these three steps. We've explained it, we've described the conditions necessary, and then we evaluated those conditions. That is an important process for you to do when you start having doubts. It is important that you articulate what it is exactly you are thinking that this doubt has brought um, a lack of peace to your heart. Then you need to, descri to describe the conditions necessary for that doubt to be true. And then evaluate that according to scripture, according to uh, the word that we know is true. And then how do we answer unbelief? How would we answer Jim Carrey? How would we answer ourselves when we start with our own doubts? Well, we begin by telling the truth that Scripture tells us everyone knows. So if Jim Carrey was here today, we would describe what he's saying, we would evaluate what he's saying, and then we would say, Jim, you already know the truth. And the truth is that Romans 1.18 says that you do already know. Let me read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The reason there is great justice in people going to hell is because there is no one going to hell who can say, I just didn't know. So when Jim Carrey uh, is sitting in front of us, we would say, you already know there is a God, and you're pushing it away, using these ridiculous arguments to make your statement to use for suppression and comfort to keep you insulated from what you do know, that there is the God. You know his attributes, you know his eternal power, and you know his divine nature. God has made it evident and clear to you. So the first step is tell them the truth they already know. Then you state the creational part about their view. What is creational about their view? In other words, what is it about their view that they're catching on to that God has put in men? And we find it in Ecclesiastes 1, right? Um, How are we doing on time? We're doing all right. Okay, let me read that quickly for you. (laughs) I keep missing it. Okay, Ecclesiastes 1. Tell me if this sounds a little bit like what he was saying. The words of the preacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and the hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, And on its circular courses, the wind returns. What's interesting is, if you were to keep listening, he talks about everything is just weather. He keeps saying everything's just weather. It just, this happens, that causes this, that causes that. And we are the same as humans. We cause, you know, we do this and we do that. It causes a reaction. It's just all weather. We don't look at weather and say weather is immoral. We don't look at weather and say, weather is a waste of time. It just is. And that's how he sees all of this. And when we look at Ecclesiastes, we see a description being made that if you stand outside of God, then when you look at the world, this is what it looks like. So we state the creational view. He's catching on to something. Now that he has suppressed the truth in his, in, in his unrighteousness and he looks at the world, of course it's going to look meaningless because you've taken the only thing that brings meaning to the world away. And we as Christians keep thinking there's something that's going to bring meaning outside of God. And this is one of the hardest things to convince teenagers of is that no, it's not that relationship with that person that's going to bring better meaning to your life. It's not that 
career that you're hoping to get that's going to finally bring meaning to your life. If Jim Carrey can teach you anything, let him teach you that when you get every single thing you've ever thought would bring meaning, it doesn't. The only thing that has meaning in this world is Christ. And through him you know the Father. And through him you have communion with the, with the Holy Spirit. And I am telling you that all those other things are sparkly and shiny. And when you get there, it's a mirage. And so there is something creational about that, about that complaint that Jim Carrey has. He's complaining that nothing means anything. And when you take God out, you ignore and you suppress him, he is exactly right. But we need to also look at the fallen part of his statement. We need to state what is fallen about their view. And what we find, what is fallen about his view is that he is having this view from the standpoint of one who is, according to Romans 3.11, not righteous. Uh, He does not understand. He is not seeking God. He has turned aside. He has become useless. He has done no good. His throat is an open grave, and his tongue keeps deceiving. The poison of asps is under his lips. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. His feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery is in his path. And the path of peace he does not know. And I would say because there is no fear of God before his eyes. And yes, his feet are swift to shed blood. Because if you were to say to him, that we should stop women from having abortions, he would explode. Because within this uh, fallen world, we don't get this objective idea. He is not thinking objectively. And And it's easy to say that about him, but are you able to say that about yourself when your own doubts come? Isn't it true when our own doubts come about Scripture, about the Lord, about Christianity, the deception comes that we actually are starting to think objectively. That maybe, if I were to really think objectively away from my Christian beliefs, uh, maybe none of this really is true. And we start thinking, wow, this, this might really be true because now I'm really starting to think objectively. And it's all deceit. You're deceiving yourself. There's nothing objective about you. There's nothing objective about our thinking. In fact, the only hope we have of of thinking in a way that is in absolute congruity with reality is through Christ. When Paul said, I do not strive to know anything except for Christ and Christ crucified, That was not a statement of humility. He wasn't saying, oh, just give me Christ. I don't need to know all this other stuff. He's actually saying, I want to know the things superior to all this other stuff. 
the thing that puts me in contact with what is true and right, opposed to all this other stuff that's way down here and foolish. So, the last step. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, if I was talking to him, then I would um, address the idea that he has been deceived into thinking he has come across some objective truth. Um, Because what this is saying is giving, and this sounds like ad hominem, of course, uh, to him, obviously, but what it's really saying is we are foolish in thinking that our sin is capable of making us objective. And his sin is not capable of making him objective. In fact, it makes him sound absurd, where he is saying, I know there is no God. I know there is no God. First of all, from a logic standpoint, to assert a negative is logical suicide. What you're saying is, I know that something isn't there. It'd be like saying, I know there are no green rocks with blue dots on them anywhere in the universe. Uh, Well, you would have to have knowledge of the entire universe to know that. You don't, so no one would ever say that. But this is even worse. What you're saying is, even though there is clear evidence that there might be something out there, I know it isn't. It's absurd. But that's what sin does. It makes you absurd because it has tricked you into thinking you have reached some objective plane. And when you demonstrate the lack of objectivity, which can be done. I mean, we, I was at a conference when we were living in Toledo uh, for scientists specifically. And I gave a speech about how the first step in scientific work is observation, which is about the least uh, objective part of science that could ever be. And I was really worried because when I got done with that speech, I was worried they were going to say stuff that I wouldn't be able to answer because they were really smart people. These are people with PhDs. They either teach science or they were uh, um, in the labs. And there was a long pause at the end, and, that, and finally someone's hand went up and they said, I don't think we ever thought of it this way that their observations would rely on their beliefs and assumptions necessary to even have what we call an observation. And so when that, is, when that is rendered false, it is a good way to show people that your sin will not make you a better thinker or more objective. It actually makes you less objective. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves as our doubts come because they will come. doesn't matter how old you are. This isn't just for teenagers who are struggling with big questions. This is for us old people who struggle with big questions, who struggle when we see real suffering in the world, real suffering in our lives, and we wonder, how can any of this all be true? 
and we think when that doubt comes that we're being objective. And lastly, we want to state the conditions necessary for their redemption. Remember, what is the problem of doubt? Let me ask you this. Uh, Let's take just Jim Carrey. What is Jim Carrey's problem? I'll give you a, a list. Is it A, Jim Carrey just doesn't have enough information? Is it B, Jim Carrey is confused? Is it C, that he is dead in his sin? <laughs> you all know we're at a Reformed church, so obviously we know it's C, and that was probably not fair. Okay, so, uh, so yes, is there confusion? Yes. Does he have very little information and he needs more information? Absolutely. But is that his problem? That is not his problem. His problem is that he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and he needs to repent. Acts chapter 3 tells us, making sure I'm, I'm keeping on time here. Acts 3.17 And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your r- rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away. So, this is Paul talking to the Jews who had been given lots of opportunities to know the truth. And even the prophets... And they still rejected it. And his answer wasn't necessarily, oh, you just don't understand. I need to help you understand. Or, oh, your logic is a little askew here. Let me fix your logic and that will help. Or, you know, we found some trinkets in the desert that proves that what Isaiah said was true. And therefore, now we can start believing. Uh, Therefore, uh, you can believe. Instead, he immediately goes to repent, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. When I am talking to Jim Carrey or when I am talking to myself, my hope isn't in my well-worded arguments. My hope is in whom? The work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only thing that's going to make him repent. The work of the Holy Spirit is going to be the only thing that makes your doubt subside. When you find yourself doubting, And I'll uh, leave us with this with our last minute. When we find ourselves doubting, do you feel like uh, praying to the Lord and begging him to give you uh, the strength of faith that you need to keep your doubts subsided? You probably don't feel like it. In fact, what, what the sin will do is push you to think that this prayer thing doesn't do anything. After all, if it did, why are you doubting? You can see how the work of sin uh, rots your brain and rots your spirit. So I want you to think uh, about these steps and how these steps can be a way of dealing with doubt and a way of reaching out to the Holy Spirit to work in you 
for victory over these things. All right, we are out of time. Let's pray. If you have more questions, I'll be right here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that not only have you uh, been our truth and our righteousness, Lord, but you are our hope against sin and against doubt. And Lord, we pray for your work in our hearts. We pray that you would uh, work in each of our hearts, that we might be known as a church of great faith and because of that great love for each other. And Lord, we pray as we enter into worship that you would prepare our hearts for it. Uh, Lord, we ask for our hearts to bow down before the word that you will speak through your servant. Pray that we would have humility before your word as Andrew comes and, and preaches to us, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.